For our scripture reading this morning, turn with me to Job 38. I'll be reading the entire chapter along with Job 40, verses 1 through 5. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring, a, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances? ordinances of the heavens. Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? When the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick fast together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in, the wait, or lie in wait in their thickets? Who provides, the, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. This morning our text is Mark 9, uh, beginning at verse 30, uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 50. For considering the greatness of God, uh, we maybe should have just read chapter, 40, or chapter 39 of Job as well, and realized our undoneness. In the end, Job says, I've got nothing to say. I am undone. You are, and I am not. Our world is compelled by who is the greatest. Job gives us a picture of God as the greatest. God represents himself as the greatest. But our world is consumed with this question. Of course, in the past day or so, the greatest is, of course, Muhammad Ali. But some may say it's Michael Jordan. Some may say it's Dale Earnhardt. Some may say it's Martin Luther King Jr. Some may say it's Mother Teresa. Some say it's Bill Gates or maybe Steve Jobs. Whose achievements stack up as being the most, the greatest, Who is the greatest president? It seems every year we have to have a greatest president's list. Who is the Forbes magazine richest man in the world? Well, that's out there, but let's make this personal. Who's the best poultry farmer in the valley? Who is on the daily news record top ten entrepreneurs? Who has the best construction company? What's the best Christian school in the area? Who here among us has the best family? Which mother cares best for her children? Which father does the most cool stuff with his kids? What church most accurately preaches and teaches the Word of God? And of the preachers there, who is the best? You see, we're wired to think of ourselves as the best. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, We all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than what we have. It is an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve thought they had not got everything that their merits deserved. It is a subtle sin. It rules and reigns in many a heart without being detected and can even wear the garb of humility. It is the most soul-ruining sin. End of quote. We all naturally fancy that either we are something better than what we think we are, or we deserve to be better than what we have. Today, Jesus takes dead aim at our claim of greatness. Again, the context of our passage, if you remember, before Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he had taught the disciples about 
his coming death and resurrection. And the disciples reacted badly to this. They said, Peter said, no, no, you're not going to die. To which Jesus identified Peter as Satan. And we see that coming from the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, the, the disciples are caught up with wanting to be the ones to cast out the demon. They wanted to be the ones that were seen as powerful. And they forgot to trust in Christ. They forgot to rest in prayer. And here again in our text, Jesus repeats the fact that he will be killed by the Jews, but that he would rise again. This time, the disciples are quiet. Maybe because they don't want to risk being called Satan. Maybe Jesus was interrupting the greatest disciple of all time discussion. Either way, it seems they choose the normal male response to multiple possible bad outcomes by being silent. Our Lord uses this to teach them and us about true greatness. Again, our text is Mark 9, and I'll begin reading in verse 30. And they went from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? 
Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. So here again, we have a story. This time, Jesus is walking through Galilee, uh, probably from Caesarea Philippi uh, towards Capernaum. This is probably the last time he will see Capernaum because he's headed towards his death. And Jesus wants this time to be alone with his disciples. Him saying that they wanted to be alone is probably more about him wanting to spend specific time with the disciples and probably less to do with um, kind of wanting to keep secrets. Um, He was probably wanting freedom from these pressing crowds and the inquiring scribes. And Jesus again repeats, and this is probably the third time that Jesus has gone over this, that he will be betrayed, that he will die, but that he he will rise again on the third day. Now again, remember that this idea of dying to become king does not make sense to the disciples. The text says they did not understand. Death is not the way to become a ruler. Death is not the way to win. Death is not the way to overcome. Suffering is not the language of conquest. Power, might, popularity. Now those, those are the words of a conqueror. Those are the words of greatness. This time, though, the disciples stay quiet. At the house in Capernaum, Jesus probes them. What were you guys discussing? What were you talking about on the way? And again, silence. Multiple bad outcomes, silence. Until someone confesses. They were talking about who was the greatest. They weren't talking about trying to figure out how Jesus' death is going to bring about the kingdom of God. They were trying to figure out who was bigger. And I can just imagine Jesus, um, I was on the interstate the last couple days, so I can imagine Jesus feeling like someone rushing up on the left lane when the caution says, merge right. You know, you're in line doing your duty and this person comes flying up. It's like, don't you know you're ruining it for everyone? You can imagine Jesus with that same indignation. We've been here. Don't you guys understand? Don't you get it? Here you are in the presence of God. And I'm explaining to you the way things are. But you prefer greatness. You prefer position. So let me tell you how my kingdom works. If you want greatness, if you want position... It doesn't work the way the world works. To be first, you must be last. To be great, you must be a servant. Again, in, it, even in our context, those are, those are opposed to each other. Greatness does not equal death. 
First does not equal last. This is not our native language. As an example, Jesus motions to a child to come and sit on his lap. See, to be great, you need to serve and receive the lowliest members of society. In this Jewish context, children were of little to no societal value. They were part of society, but not really until they came to adulthood. And so for Jesus, the rabbi, to, the teacher, to ask for a child showed his service. Children were at the bottom of society, just above slaves. And then, the true bombshell of the message. If you receive the lowliest of society and serve them, you receive me and serve me, and are operating according to my rules. And in doing so, in doing so, you are receiving and welcoming the Father, the God of the universe, the only true Great One. The word receive here means more to welcome, to invite This is more service and hospitality. This is also acknowledging and receiving the truth. And receive is a powerful word because it means something implicitly. If you need to receive something, it means you don't have it. If the greatness is outside of you, then it needs to come from somewhere else. If the truth is outside of it, then it needs to come from somewhere else. And Jesus is saying here that this truth, this greatness, doesn't come from your efforts, from your declaration of your own glory, but it comes as we order our lives to God's kingdom. So what does this look like? In the remainder of the passage, the writer gives us four specific examples or four specific points of action in defeating our inborn seeking of greatness. The first we see begins in verse 38, where John comes to him and says, the disciple John comes to him and says, we saw this other guy, and he was, he was casting out demons in your name, but he's not one of our people. He's not one of us. What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with him? And Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. Because if he's not opposing us, that means he's for us. And in fact, in fact, help him. Give him a cup of water. And so I think the first point of action is don't be tribal. Don't be territorial. Don't be, our church is the only churchish. No one church, no one people can claim a corner on greatness. Can claim a corner on having a part of God that no one else can have. 
If we see someone doing the work of God, they may not be us. They may not be exactly like us. But bless them. Serve them. You see, the way of the kingdom isn't to go around and mark our turf and say, this is us, and everyone else is out there. The way of the kingdom is to do the work of God, to be who we are, but to recognize that there are others. The way of the kingdom is to recognize that it is all God's. We are servants. If others are servants, bless them. The second instruction then is to be careful. Be careful. Because the wages of leading believers astray is drastic. He says it would be better if we were drowned. Our actions affect others. If we are trying to build our empire here, if our sphere of influence is our empire and our church is our empire, that empire will need followers. And if we are trying to use spiritual means to construct our own kingdom, to build up our own greatness, then that leading astray has consequences. Because, see, these followers are normally young or impressionable. And we bear responsibility for leading them astray. Thirdly, be aggressive against your sin. Be aggressive against your sin. What follows in, in verses 43 to 48 is a gory hyperbole depicting the lengths to which we should go to kill sin. I don't think he's calling us to actually self-mutilate, but it's the image of what it takes, what is necessary to kill our sin. It's better to go to heaven crippled, lame, and blind than to be thrown whole into hell. In other words, what are the things in your life that move you to pursue your own greatness? Cut them out. If there's something in your life that calls you to make much of you and to limit making much of Christ, cut it out. If there's something that calls you to pursue your own greatness, cut it out. There are things that displace God. Cut it out. Be ruthless. But remember the first warning. Don't be tribal. You see, we can be quite satisfied with our ability to ruthlessly cut ourselves up. We can be pretty proud of the fact that, that you know... I, I've decided to not go on Facebook because I really think that's going to draw me down. And so to do so, I'm going to post a message on Facebook that says, all you sinners can stay on Facebook, but I'm, I'm moving on. We 
we can be pretty satisfied in our ability to be ruthless to ourselves. And we can claim our ability to manage ourselves as our greatness. And the final instruction he gives us is to be salty. Salt has two purposes, to preserve, but it's also to change or to flavor. We know in our food when the presence of salt is there, but we may actually know more when it's not there because it changes things. The question he's asking us is, are you salty? Is your life about your greatness? That would be the non-salty version. Is your life salted with God's greatness? Because if it is, then you will affect the things around you. If we're honest, we are given to self-exaltation. But God calls us to self-abandonment. We seek our own greatness. God calls us to recognize His greatness. One writer asked us to take a painful pride test. Question number one. Am I upset if I'm not praised for my work? Am I upset if I'm not praised for my work? Do I value what other people think about what I do? Do I long, excuse me, do I like and even long to sit at the head table in the seat of honor? Do I like to be seen as important? Do I seek credit for what others have done? Do honorary titles pump me up? Is popularity crucial to my sense of self-worth? Am I a name dropper of those I know or pretend to know. Am I quick to say, that's not fair? Do I think I have something valuable to say about almost everything? Now, if we're honest, all of us get stepped on a little bit by that list because we do like the praise of men. We do like position. We do like to be known. We like to know important people. These questions force all of us to face our own quest for greatness. 
But as Ryle said in the beginning, it is the original sin. You see, Adam and Eve longed to be equal in greatness with God. And Satan told them the lie that that God was holding it from them. You see, you can be as great as God. God just doesn't want you to be as great as He is. And He's keeping that back. And Satan tempts us with the very same lie. God is not telling you everything. He is being selfish with His greatness. And we tell us, we tell ourselves these things in many different ways. I deserve this. I deserve that. The, probably the most popular modern version of this is, is to twist it and say that, that, that God, God actually wants you to be great. God wants you to be successful. He wants you to be wealthy. And there are so-called preachers who promise Wealth and influence. Again, this is Satan merely whispering in our ears again, you can be great. God is holding you back from your greatness. But Jesus tells us that the way of the kingdom is different. And his examples here in this text And finally, in his death on the cross, he models that true greatness is in sacrifice. Jesus on the cross is declaring to the world, I will lay down what is rightfully mine and sacrifice for the world. You see, if there was anyone in the world who could lay claim to the greatest of all time, it was Jesus. The God-man. The one who could at his will summon 10,000 angels. The one who, like Elisha, could make the armies disappear. The one who could have been exactly what the disciples wanted him to be. And he could have made Rome disappear. He could have laid claim to the greatest human of all time. But he chose to sacrifice. He chose to lay down his greatness for that which was unworthy. For us. For you. For me. And on the cross and in the gospel, he declares that sacrifice is the way of the kingdom. Today, Jesus calls to you. Lay down your greatness because His is greater. Stop seeking your own and seek His. Stop seeking your own and receive His. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we recognize that we are seekers of our own renown. That we're often caught up in in what makes ourselves great. 
Father, continue to teach us that the way of the kingdom is sacrifice, is service. And that we have no greatness of our own to claim, but only yours to tell. Father, do your work in our hearts through Christ. Amen.